Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. In her book of essays, A Burst of Light, Audre Lorde says, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. Over the years, self-care has become a buzzword, and it's an idea that now is overly commercialized. Some estimates value the self-care industry at $450 billion. But what is self-care, and how has our understanding changed over time? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we discuss the importance of self-care and how to better incorporate wellness into our daily lives. Coming up, we'll talk about making self-care more accessible for women of color, and an advocate talks about the movement to abolish work. But now we're joined by Dr. Mariam Aziz. They're an African-American history postdoctoral fellow at Penn State University, and they study wellness and movement practices during the Black Power era. Groups like the Black Panthers are known today for their work advancing civil rights and confronting American institutions. But for many Black activists during the 60s and 70s, self-care wasn't a luxury. It was a means of survival. Dr. Mariam Aziz, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. You are currently writing a book on the histories of unarmed self-defense, martial arts, and wellness during the Black Power era. So I have to ask you, what attracted you to this area of research? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, my parents were actually community organizers during the 70s. And growing up, I remember these stories of my father talking about how he practiced martial arts. 1970s Brooklyn and New York. And I was always so fascinated when I got to college and grad school. I was like, why are these some of his most vivid memories <laughs> of this time period? And so I started digging into the multiple ways that Black folks were interested in unarmed self-defense and martial arts, some of which were through the Black arts movement and thinking about practices like Black dance. They're starting to think about African-descended martial arts and Asian-descended martial arts as in conversation, but they're also obviously thinking about political safety and physical well-being. So I came into that topic through a very personal (laughs) African-American history. And then as a scholar practitioner, I've been doing martial arts for almost 20 years. And so there was something about this topic that really drew me in. So I want to get into later this practice for you and how your involvement in martial arts fits into the scholarship that you're doing. But in listening to you talk about that experience and exposure from your parents, I'm reminded of the sort of syncretic cultural experience of the 70s of martial arts, particularly for Black communities across the U.S. And so we know, for example, that the term self-care, as we now know it, wasn't used in the 70s, but members of the Black Panther Party, the Black Power Movement, certainly popularized and politicized that notion. Talk to us about how they define self-care during that term and what role did it play in Black Power movements? I think you're so right that the idea, the first time we see the term self-care 
is coming out of that mid 20th century, probably out of medical communities. You know, we're not going to see it if we Google <laughs> the Nation of Islam or the Congress of People in Self-Care. You're not going to get a lot of hits, right? But certainly that notion is something that African-Americans have been forwarding for hundreds of years, this idea of, you know, you cannot be consistently laboring or you can't just be organizing around electoral politics, right? You need respite and you need rest. And so that's certainly not going to be a new concept for us when we get to civil rights or we hit Black power. But there's something about the ways in which folks theorize or continue theorizations, both around health justice and the self in the 1960s and 1970s that are really compelling. And so, you know, folks are doing everything from reading as self-enhancement to thinking about, you know, what can I learn about my history, about my own identity that I can't get in schools. And so, you know, something like reading is actually becoming a form of self-care. But then you have folks who are thinking about what are the ways in which nutrition, right, or access to food, right, like these ideas of quote unquote food deserts, right? Folks have been thinking about that for decades. And then obviously you have, I'm a big fan of, of movement, right? Of this idea that if we can do dance or even, you know, we start to think about yoga or similar practices, or we can do karate and taekwondo, right? These are all forms of taking care of the self. And so many Black power organizations are thinking about the self and thinking about how to nurture the self but always in relationship to community. So even for them, the self and self-care, both the self and the care are very important, right? But always together. It sounds that it's also about affirming the sense of agency that people have to define themselves for themselves in relation to community, particularly in spaces that often deny that agency and deny that humanity. And then it's also sort of promoting longevity and sustainability. That practice, that connection historically seems to be quite different from where we are today. Why do you think historically it was necessary or or seen as beneficial to advocate this notion of self-care? As much as we take a lot of things from the history of the Black Power Movement, right? And, And so much of it is thinking about all the, the ways in which politically they disrupted or scared <laughs> folks that were not radical or not Black, right? Disrupting white supremacy or white ideas of what Blackness should look like in the 70s. But if we think about, you know, the Panthers, for example, Dr. Londra Nelson does great work on thinking about their framework of serving folks' body and soul. And, you know, some of the things that scholars have talked about in the last 20 years are how valuable and important their community survival programs were, which, you know, community survival programs might have been their language, but it's something that all the groups in the Black Power Movement are doing. So that's how we get that sickle cell anemia clinic. That's how we get the free breakfast program. And so something about surviving pending revolution, right, that actually, in fact, until we get to a moment where there are no more racist social and political structures, that something in the meantime has to be happening, that you have to be able to stay present and survive in your reality. And so I think that that framework is slightly different than how we think about self-care in this moment. But it was just absolutely necessary. I mean, for the folks who were incarcerated during this time, literally doing yoga while incarcerated. And I talk a little bit in my work about Angela Davis and some of the women who were incarcerated doing karate and martial arts. 
right? And so how do you literally stay spiritually, mentally, and emotionally present <laughs> under the threat of racism, right? This is actually, it takes a toll <laughs> on your body and your spirit. It's a very embodied component. It's not just taking a toll on your politics and your economics, but those things are then still impacting you and the other parts of you. I'm listening to you talk about these two amazing women who pioneered many forms of thought, practice, and community connection. And that seems very distinct from what we think of as the quote-unquote self-care movement today, particularly because at the beginning of a new year, we are inundated with demands for self-care and wellness, and it is translating into what you can buy, right? It's sort of the commercialization of care. And that space in a corporate sense is often dominated predominantly by white people who are part of an upper class or or upper middle class demographic that doesn't seem to match with the kinds of community spaces that you're talking about. How accessible then was was self-care and this notion of wellness during black power movements? And how do you think that has sort of led us to where we are today? Yeah, there's something about sometimes the the able-bodiedness of self-care or as you're saying so eloquently the corporatization of self-care but you know if you're running a a black community center in the 70s and 80s and the 60s you know you're not charging a hundred dollars a month for a class there's something about for folks making free programming right so i think one way to think about accessibility is certainly financial accessibility that you know, if you want to drop your kids off after school, but, you know, you can't pay for those classes, like that financial accessibility is so important. But also, I mean, the top, the programming going age accessibility from young children to elders, or even just the types of things that you can do, right, that, you know, actually, you don't have to do taekwondo or meditative movement in one way that actually, you know, if you have different physical abilities, that there is a way in which you can come together in a certain space. And, not to say that all Black power groups, right, did this equally and groups change over time, right, but there is a way in which given what your abilities allow you to do, you could come and be in a space. And there's something really crucial about the ideals. So say for example, you know, Steve McCutcheon was the head martial arts instructor at the Oakland Community Learning Center in the mid 70s. And there's a brilliant interview with him and other black martial arts instructors where they're talking about self-appreciation and self-love, right? And that if their young black and brown students are coming into their classroom, right? That one of the most important things is not even the physical embodiment of the martial art, but actually just a sense of like black pride and black love for themselves, which, you know, we see a lot in this time period. I think that embodiment of identities, plural, right? All at once, because as a child of the 70s, when I think of black power movements, I often think of this very hyper-masculine, cisgendered space that doesn't really provide for that sense of agency to emerge from people who don't fit that template. So whether we're talking about physical ability, whether we're talking about gender identity, whatever the the sort of demarcations are, it sounds though that there's a, a disconnect between what that popular image may be and how this was actually playing out on the ground and in community. Who were some of the people that you were, would say were architects of this who don't fit into that mold, but certainly should be recognized for how they have moved the community forward? 
you know, I could go as far out as to say, let's think about the Black trans women and non-binary folks that are thinking about joy and, you know, reimagining what dance and competition and performance are that, you know, starts in this. I mean, we think about ballroom culture now as, you know, 80s and 90s, thankfully, because of Pose. But there's ways in which in certain cities, right, those things are already happening, that sense of coming together in community <laughs> to be vibrant and alive when you can. I mean, that's already happening. I mean, you have, like you said, even if we get outside the ideas of hyper-masculinity, there are certain forms of Black cisgender men or Black masculinities that we don't think about. I mean, you have Kwesi Bulagoon, who was in an incarcerated former Black Panther who did a whole book on stretching and movement and what he did while incarcerated to get through every day. And, you know, that's very different seeing him as an openly bi (laughs) incarcerated person who is doing wellness and doing stretching or quote unquote wellness than what we think of as the hyper-masculinity of Black power. And like we've been talking about the Black, like the Black women that are thinking through Black feminism and Black power at the same time, we often separate them out. But, you know, folks are are thinking syncretically. One of the things that I worry about and that gives me concern is when I think of younger movement leaders today. I worry about the people who don't prioritize and claim their worth in self-care and wellness because you can give your whole self to an effort and to a movement and then get left incredibly broken when you haven't made the time. Is that a concern for you when you, you think about these legacies? Or do you feel like younger folks get it in ways that perhaps people of my generation don't understand? You know, I think it would be a mix. You know, I think even if we think about, as, as much as I study the folks that are thinking about holistic approaches to well-being and Black power, I mean, you have folks who, who left that by the wayside that, you know, for them, internal work it might have been the second or third thing on their list and they're going and they're going. And I think that's the same thing that we might be seeing now where you have lots of folks that are t- thinking about spirituality and what that means to Black community organizing from a variety of perspectives, whether it's reclaiming Black Christianity or thinking about folks who are, you know, African-American Muslims or folks who are doing African-descended spiritual religions of other practices like Ifa. Like, actually, the spirit, I think, is actually important for a lot of folks. And so is that reading. I think folks are reading now, folks in the 60s and 70s. But certainly, you can see the burnout, you know, as someone who, you know, did... <laughs> organizing in graduate school, I could tell you that, you know, even for the best, even for someone with a practice like me, that burnout was continually trying to catch up to you. And so it is something I think that has to be contended with is where do you find the balance? And we do have models for what happens if you can't find the balance. And we do have models for what happens if you do. Let's talk about how this shows up for you. We both know that to be in academia for folks like us who don't fit the the phenotype, should we say, of what people expect in these spaces, it can be not only challenging, for some people, it can be soul crushing. How do self-care and wellness show up in your life? Like, how do you prioritize this with all of the spaces that you're navigating with the kind of commitments that you have? The same type of boundaries that I've developed, you know, sort of as as an organizer um, are the same boundaries that I put in practice as a scholar practitioner. So, you know, I'm done work by a certain time of the day. I don't work on weekends. 
And part of that is because I know that I could work on weekends, but if I don't take the rest, (laughs) then the person who shows up the next week is running into the burnout and I have to do a movement practice. If I'm not actively doing that and doing some embodied form of healing, even though we know, you know, healing is a very, it's a whole process, right? We're we're never getting to an end. But if I don't do those things and I'm only in the work, not only is it weird because I study (laughs) martial arts and, you know, wellness and well-being, but it doesn't feel good. And so I have to be very boundary with that. And I'll tell you, moving through that helps with a lot of the anxiety of being a Black academic, being a Black person trying to navigate this profession. Two of the beliefs that I carry in my scholarship and in my professional work are that, you know, you have to protect your peace and also that rest is a form of resistance. What is it that you want your scholarship to say to people in terms of creating that bridge between the historical notions of wellness and Black power movements and the kinds of challenges that we face today in the future? What do you want your scholarship to say? For me, what bridges a lot of these histories of Black power and martial arts is a holistic idea of self-defense, right? That actually it is very important for folks to be able to do self-protection, right? That the same way that we saw organizers being attacked or confronted with a physical brutality in the 70s. I mean, we could see it with the tiki torches a couple of years ago, even till now. When you show up to a protest, right, that there is a form of physical self-defense that can be really helpful if it's accessible to you. But holistic self-defense doesn't just stop there, that if you're not treating your mind for the long term, if you're not catering to the body and soul long term, as the Panthers would say, that you are, that's something particularly about Blackness and Black health, right? We're going to start running into problems. And so that bridge of self-defense being something that crosses <laughs> across the body, across the mind, that's something I really want folks to take away. And also the inclusivity of it, right? That it's not just <laughs> a single gender identity, a single sexuality identity, right? That Black folks across spectrums of life need to cater to their well-being in these ways. And we can do it, right? And we can share these practices in ways that are accessible and also honor where they come from, I think is also important, right? Honoring the traditions because we don't always get these things in very neat and comfortable ways. You know, if we think about legacies of yoga or Asian descended martial arts in particular, there are some really, you know, prickly histories (laughs) at times. And so it's important, I think, to remember that and think about how we reclaim the practices and things for survival and in the moment, the immediate survival of the moment. Dr. Mari Maziz is a postdoctoral fellow in African-American history at Penn State University. Mariam, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. When we come back, a certified meditation guide on how her own healing led her to create a space of wellness for BIPOC women and an anti-work advocate on why more people are reevaluating their careers. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. When the COVID-19 pandemic first started, 
Many people thought it'd be a way to spend more time at home and with their families, but now it's led to high rates of burnout and anxiety. The American Psychological Association released its 2021 Work and Wellbeing Survey. It found that 79% of adult workers have experienced work-related stress and burnout, and that's pushed many to find new ways to relax and reconnect. Angeli Lopez is one of those people. Lopez struggled with burnout for years until finally seeking help, but she found that there weren't many resources for women of color. So after being laid off in 2020, Angeli launched Manifest House. It's a virtual well-being space that focuses on BIPOC women and FEMS. Angeli, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me here, Kalila. I am honored to be sharing the space with you today. So let's talk about how you are creating a space or spaces for people on their journey. And before we talk about Manifest House and, and the purpose behind that, I'm curious what led you on this path toward wellness and mental health together and what inspires your passion for it today? My story kind of stemmed from waking up in my mid-20s and realizing I was completely burnt out. I was in the midst of a serious bout of depression. I was having anxiety every single day. That, you know, that day when I had that awareness and realizing that I didn't have the tools to get out of it and I needed to ask for help. And for me, that looked like going to therapy for the first time in my life. And therapy had been something I was thinking about, but really felt intimidated by it. And, you know, being a Latina woman, not really having a model for going to therapy or even for talking about my feelings, right? And and being open with them. But once I did that, it truly changed my life. And it really was a catalyst for my own self-healing journey. And for me, that you know, I began to explore other holistic healing modalities. So I started deepening my yoga practice. I started meditating, gratitude, journaling, all of these other beautiful things that were really starting to expand me. And so I knew that I needed to share it with other people. And that's really where I began my journey towards creating Manifest House. But but it first began with that, you know, my personal lived experience of, of making that kind of transformation in who I was and the work that I was doing. You know, I think there are a lot of people who will be listening to you talk about your journey and it will resonate with them because many of us hear this still quiet voice that says something isn't okay, something isn't right, and that we know that, but there are all of these cultural signals that many people receive, right? There's a shame or a stigma about saying something isn't right and I want to do something about it. And for too many people, it's hard to overcome that. What does self-care look like in the kind of work that, that you do of saying, this is about wellness, this is about a holistic sense of wellness? How do you define self-care? 
Yes. So self-care is such a multifaceted topic. And I think that that is where there is a myth associated with it. And I am guilty of it as well, right? Early on in my journey, I thought that self-care was going to a spa day or perhaps um, getting my nails done. And, you know, I like those things too. So don't get me wrong, right? Those can be a form of self-care. However, it goes so much deeper than that. There are many layers to it. And I like to think about self-care as being mental. There's physical self-care. So thinking about your physical body, there's spiritual self-care. There is self-care within the work that you do. So your work, career, or school. And, and also it goes into the space that you're in, that you occupy daily, right? So whether that's your home or your office or wherever you are, because all of those things impact you on a soul level, it looks different for everyone. So I like to help people search within themselves to see, number one, what am I feeling? right? Like where am I at on a scale of being the least fulfilled in these different areas to the most fulfilled? And what types of self-care activities could fill me up in these areas of my life? And that's really the work that I'm doing is helping to guide people to determine what that means for them. Let's talk about the work that you're doing and how you're bringing people together to decide what they need to do and to create that journey. You are the founder of Manifest House and you created this space in the middle of 2020. So starting a new endeavor is always a challenge, but doing so amid all the uncertainty of the pandemic can be even more challenging, but perhaps create new opportunities and new need. What motivated you or inspired you to curate a virtual health and wellness space? Yeah. So as I mentioned um, before, you know, the work that I do today will always be kind of inspired by my own experience. And as I was going through my self-healing journey, I often felt very alone in the process. And so in 2020, I ended up getting laid off from my full-time job. And for me, that was really a sign that it was time for this dream to be births. And so I began the process of really putting pen to paper my vision for Manifest House. And because we were obviously in the middle of a pandemic, I had no choice but to start virtual. And, you know, it was also, though, really intentional because when you are in virtual healing spaces, um, not only are you able to access the same benefits as, as you would be able to in, let's say, an in-person studio, but it also unlocks this accessibility. We can reach more people. We can bring on more instructors, and they can be anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. And so it's been a really beautiful thing to see grow. But I felt that there was a gap in the wellness industry in supporting women, supporting BIPOC women. And it didn't make any sense to me because so many of these healing practices originated from communities of color, right? And so I wanted to create something where we could honor those practices, those lineages, and learn from instructors that look like us. And so Manifest House has uh, live stream healing events that we do every single week. The modalities span from breath work to sound healing to meditation classes. 
And we also have workplace wellness. And then really our core offering is a membership community for women. And we place an emphasis on BIPOC women. You know, so much of what we've learned during this pandemic is that often the weight of it has been shouldered by women and often by BIPOC women, women of color, women identified folks who face that uncertainty, that disruption in terms of employment or childcare and elder care and figuring out where does self-care fit into that? What's the space for me to take the time that I need to, to just figure out what rest looks like and what care looks like? And often women feel like they're not entitled to that or, or that's some privilege that they can't access because of all the things that they have to do. And one of your mantras, which I, I think is so important, especially now, is that wellness is a birthright. What does that mean for Manifest House to say that wellness is a birthright? Yeah, there has been a myth that wellness and self-care is only for affluent people. Um, in many cases, is only for white identifying people. And that's simply not true. We as human beings deserve and were born and created to rest and to find leisure and to care for our bodies and nourish our spirits. And there simply aren't <laughs> enough ways to share that message, right? And, and I think that it's especially difficult to do those things in a society that demands we keep going, that tells us we can't stop, that tells us we'll fall behind. And it's simply not true. Um, so a lot of the times the work that I'm doing is sharing and um, reminding women and everyone that rest is our birthright, that self-care is and wellness. And it's for everyone, not just people who look a certain way or um, act a certain way, right? Oh, I, I think you captured it. And it, it certainly speaks to this idea of if rest is for everyone, then we have to incorporate rest everywhere. And one of the spaces where that rarely seems to happen is in the workplace. And you've talked a lot about the importance of workplace wellness. And I know that some people have this anxiety of the return to offices, not the return to work because people have been working, but the return to offices. What would you say to employers about the importance of prioritizing and valuing wellness in the workplace? I think it needs to rise to the top of the priority list because what has been happening for long before the pandemic is that these things, these wellness practices or offerings have been offered to employees if they're even offered, right, as kind of a last resort or at the bottom of the priority bucket. And I think that the you know, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of the employer, perhaps it may be because, well, I don't see a return on this, right? It all comes down down to the dollar at the end of the day. We know that, right? They, they may say, well, I don't see a return on this. But I think the piece that they're missing is that wellness and offering um, employees true, you know, ways to rest, to slow down, to be more intentional 
is going to return to them, is going to return to their customers. Because when you have someone who is suffering from chronic tiredness, chronic burnout, versus someone who is well-rested, right? Just think about you as an individual when you're well-rested versus when you're burnt out. You're able to just show up in an entirely different way. And so, you know, it it really is best for everyone at the end of the day. And I think that's the piece that has been missing and perhaps, you know, is starting to shift um, with with what we've experienced collectively during the pandemic. But with return to office, you know, I think that companies should be thinking now about how that's going to look different for their employees and how they're going to continue to support the well-being in a real meaningful way. And honestly, it goes beyond just these the offerings, right? The the workshops and the classes because if you are under-resourced or your demand, you know, your culture is one that is a nonstop demanding place to be, right? There's no amount of workshops that are going to fix that. That's a structural issue. So that could be a whole nother discussion. <laughs> it's the connection between the structural challenges, but it's also about a change of culture. And that's always difficult. But cultures change when individuals start making those changes. So what would you say to people who may be listening and thinking, there's something here that I want to explore. What are one or two ways that you would encourage people to embrace or move on radical wellness and rest within their own lives? I would say that first, I would encourage everyone to do a little bit of self-inquiry and begin to unpack the messages that they, that you, right, have received about rest and about wellness. Because I think that's an important place to start because you'll begin to notice, you know, things that maybe um, you have learned or picked up through others, through, you know, your upbringing, through society, your culture, um, your, your self-identity. Because once you have that awareness of like, oh, yeah, I didn't have, right? No one in my life I saw resting or I was told, you know, you can sleep when you're dead or um, it's, you know, hustle harder, like those those types of things we constantly receive in our everyday lives. And so begin to kind of unpack and, and see what that looks like for you. And then I always like to um, encourage people to tune into their needs in the moment and do one small thing to help fill yourself up. Because I think that's the other misnomer about self-care is that it has to be, you know, a week-long vacation or, you know, and oftentimes we wait, we hold out on ourselves because we're like, oh, we're, I have this, you know, vacation planned in three months perhaps. And so I'm just going to work really, really hard until I get there, right? We think we have to earn the rest. That's the other thing, right? And, and not only do we not have to earn our rest, but we are also able to rest in small doses to really continue to fill ourselves up. And so I always have people start really small, like really, really small, you know, and maybe it's simply drinking one more cup of water 
every day than they are now. So yeah, those are, that would be my suggestion. And then, you know, I think if you're a leader in any capacity, perhaps at work or even, you know, everyone's a leader in some way, but um, in your community spaces, but just getting curious and finding folks who you can, you know, learn from or bring in to help facilitate some of these types of events and healing experiences, because again, it's truly, truly for everyone. I appreciate the reminder that prioritizing self-care doesn't make us selfish. And I think we all can can learn from that and embrace it. Angelie Lopez is a certified meditation guide and founder of the virtual well-being space Manifest House. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. When we return, a former moderator of a popular anti-work forum on Reddit talks about the movement and the great resignation. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This is Disruptive. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. 2021 has been called the year of quitting. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 4.2 million Americans quit their jobs, and those rates are continuing to reach record-breaking numbers. Our next guest once had an influential role in the anti-work movement. Doreen Ford is a former moderator of a forum on Reddit called r slash anti-work. The subreddit offers a space for people to reevaluate their relationship with work and better advocate for themselves. And as a note to our listeners, our conversation with Doreen was recorded late last week. In the last few days, Doreen has come under fire from other Reddit members for her participation in a live Fox News interview. On January 27th, after a period where the subreddit went private, Doreen and many others from the moderation team were removed from the group. New r slash anti-work moderators say the group is no longer associated with Doreen and removed all links to her previous media appearances, including ours. Doreen spoke to us initially from her role broadly as an anti-work activist and not on behalf of the Reddit group. I asked Doreen to walk us through the purpose of the anti-work movement and what they hope to achieve. The anti-work movement in broad strokes is designated to uh, reduce coercive labor in society as much as possible. What that's going to take is probably a lot of a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of you know big intentions. So in that way, definitely, you know, the antithesis of just a bunch of lazy people who don't care to contribute. I think a lot of people love to contribute, even if they're not making any money off it, you know, with Wikipedia editing or Minecraft or like lots of things that people do. Like I'm a dungeon master. I don't get paid for that, but I love it. And I put a lot of effort into it. So people do plenty of things that they that they love and enjoy without without necessarily getting any money for it because it brings other people comfort or joy or whatever. And I think, you know, that's definitely the the contributing part of it that I think a lot of people in the anti-work movement do want to contribute to their community and do want to contribute to the people who matter to the most. When I say that we want to reduce the amount of coercive labor, I'm talking about having to basically wake up at like, you know, really early in the morning, like incredibly early, go to a job, you know, commute there, don't want to go at all, you know, not having good wages and and feeling like you're being underpaid or not being paid enough, working with difficult bosses or discriminating bosses or, you know, so on and so forth. You know, it's all part of a larger system of capitalism, which we are criticizing and wanting to subvert and ultimately replace with 
something else. I do think that we have an emphasis on reclaiming laziness as a good thing, or at least as a thing that doesn't really exist in the moralistic way that capitalism wants us to believe. You know, it's okay to take rest for yourself, to take care of your mental health. I think our society currently relies way too much on productivity as a measurement of people's worth. And so I think that's definitely something the anti-work movement is fighting against. So I I think it's interesting that it's considered revolutionary to say that it's okay to take time for yourself. And I think that speaks to a broader indictment of the kinds of things that we value as a society, but also the things that we project onto others. As you said, this moralistic claim as a measure of someone's worth based on what they produce for other people without thinking about what it means to them and the ways that it can be destructive in many people's lives. And what I appreciate about this movement and what you've just outlined is that it's really about bringing people together from various spaces. And one of the spaces that we see people coming together that you help curate is the anti-work subreddit. And I'm told that it's one of the most active pages on Reddit with over 1.7 million users, which is fascinating to me. Talk to us about the story of how you got involved in the anti-work movement and how you're working with other people to really get this message out. Jeez, I had to double check you. I was like, is it 1.7 already? And I looked, I thought we were still at 1.6. But yeah, I actually joined in December 2014 and the subreddit was started in August 2013. A friend of mine started it and, you know, I didn't think too much of it at the time. I mean, I was into it. But in December of 2014, I started my own website, abolishwork.com, because I had been thinking about work for a few years. I had read Bob Black's The Abolition of Work. I was still working in retail and I hated it. Uh, I had been working in retail at that point for three years, a little over three years, and I hated pretty much any job I took. So it, it was just kind of a natural progression of like seeing work for kind of what it was, which was just kind of a banal, pointless thing that I felt forced into that I'd rather do anything else really with my time uh, than make you know, a bunch of really rich CEOs and stockholders money. I work with dogs now. And so, you know, when, when the quote unquote customers are happy, does not take me very long to actually notice that they're happy because they're dogs. (laughs) People are a lot more complicated for better or worse. You know, retail is pretty miserable work, at least in my experience. But yeah, I joined in 2014. It's pretty quiet. I mean, we had about a thousand idlers at that point and we had about a thousand by the end of 2014. And then you know, I got to be honest, I didn't do that much those first couple of years because, I mean, the subreddit just didn't demand it. It wasn't that busy. I don't remember being super active until maybe 2016, 2017, where we started getting put in memes and left the subreddit started reaching out. And we started getting cross-posted into other subreddits and reposted on other social media stuff very slowly and very infrequently. But it started building pretty naturally. And then, of course, in the last couple of years, because of the pandemic and the great resignation, it's just blown up entirely. We had around 90,000 idlers, we call them, or subscribers, whatever you want to say, last January. And as you just pointed out, we have 1.7 million now. So I think Reddit said it was something like a 200% growth, which I don't think I've ever seen in my life. And if you look at the graphs on Reddit, it's just a straight line up. Let's talk about how your journey is connecting in this broader space. And you mentioned just now the great resignation. And one of the outcomes of this pandemic is that a lot of people took a step back and said, wait a minute, I'm miserable or I don't have to live this way. This has shown me that maybe work is is something that is corrosive in my life and maybe I want to go and try something different. 
And then you have a demographic terrain of people who are afraid of change, who may be miserable, but are afraid to say my job does not fill me the way that it should. What are some of the demographics that you're seeing amongst people who are either active in the anti-work movement or are part of this space that you are in of people who are connecting on these issues? What are the demographics look like? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked that. We've actually done some surveys. Well, the last one we did was probably our best yet, and we're planning on doing one in a few weeks. But the data is, it's a pretty typical subreddit. Most people are from the US. Most people are male. A a few of the mod team are, are women, and a few of the mod team, including myself, are trans. But regardless, yeah, it was, I think, about like 60% or 70% male. We surveyed about like 1,300 people. So yeah, the demographics are usually that people are male, they live in the U.S., and they're fully employed. The third part confuses some people because they're like, wait, a lot of y'all are fully employed? Look, I would think that you're unemployed or, or students or something like that. And no, that's actually the large minority of our, our, according to the survey anyway, obviously it's not exhaustive. And yeah, what we found is that most people are full, fully employed. And I think people think about that and they go, wow, that seems really contradictory. But my, my immediate takeaway is like, well, of course they are, because that's why they hate work. They know exactly what it's made of. Like, it's hard to hate something when you don't know what it is. And I think a lot of people in the subreddit hate work because they, they do know what it is. They know what full-time work looks like. They know what corporation, how corporations operate, you know, what the workday feels like on their mental health and their family relationships and their friends. They know what it is. And so, of course, they hate it. So it seems that this is a space where it's fostering solidarity, because as you said, you have a a core group of people who are fully employed, who understand what this looks like every day to show up in a system and a structure that doesn't value not just their labor, but doesn't value them as people. And so I would ask you, Doreen, what would you say are one or two key steps that you and others in this movement would like us to see us move toward to actually restructure our society so that it's more anti-work? What are one or two things that we could do in order to move that forward? Yeah, I'll definitely say two things. There's a lot of important steps. And I I do think it's a step-based process. It's a gradual process. I don't think Almost anybody in the movement thinks this is going to happen overnight. It's a, it's a gradual thing. But anyway, I would say radical unionization and education. So radical unionization, right? So just to give any a couple examples, we are backing currently the Kroger strikers by sticking a thread that's all about like how you can support them and how you can like not buy from certain companies and stuff like that. That's sticky and it's been sticky for almost a week, maybe. So lots of attention on that. And then we also backed the Kellogg strikers. There was a whole story on the verge about this, but Basically, a member posted like this spoofing thing that would create artificial applications and flood the Kellogg site with it. And it got so bad that it crashed it. Of course, Kellogg's denied that it crashed the site, but, you know, everyone can use their eyes. And anyway, the best part about that is that the Kellogg strikers got asked about how they felt about that. And in in the Verge article, one of them said it was phenomenal, which was a super great moment for me because it felt like we were actually doing something that was you know, helping people that were on the ground. So radical unionization is helpful because, you know, it, it shows everyone's solidarity. You know, there's kind of another slogan of like, you know, alone we beg, but together we demand. So demands are a lot easier to actually go through if you're if you're together. By the way, those Kellogg strikers got everything they asked for and didn't make any 
It didn't make any concessions to management, which I think is terrific. That doesn't mean like, oh, we've abolished work, but it's a good step towards better, better worker treatment, better, um, you know, labor practices. You know, like I said, this movement is about radical change, but it, it's not necessarily, you know, down, downplaying or naysaying gradual change either. And then the other thing, like I said, was education. I mean, obviously, I'm going to toot my own horn on this. You know, I started the abolishwork.com website with the intention of helping to start a movement. I never thought it w- I would. I thought I'd just be at it for a long time. Most writers are, and they don't get very far besides maybe like alienating their family members or something with their weird writing habits. But yeah, I mean, there's a reason I don't really write for it anymore is I feel like I really succeeded in what I wanted to do. I don't really write too much anymore in general, except unless it's for school. And, you know, I'm really proud of what I did. But on the other hand, you know, I, I don't feel like I need to keep it going. I feel like the movement's kind of self-sustaining at this point. And I'm happy to be in the background, but I'm also happy to do media and stuff. I have a mixed feeling on on that because education is important. It gets the word out. It makes other people maybe more sympathetic or understanding to the anti-work movement. But on the other hand, you know, I know that misconceptions can start up and people will think I'm kind of some kind of spokesperson or think other moderators are the spokesperson for the movement. But like, you know, much like Occupy, like no one's the leader of this movement. You know, we're, we're all in this together. I just happen to be a moderator. I also just happen to have been there the longest. And I also happen to be good at interviews and I like doing them. So it's just, you know, it's just what's going to happen, I guess. You know, I, I, I do it because I want I want that second part to happen because I'm not doing the first. You know, I, I, I work in like a really small business and unionizing would would be a, a lot tougher, I think, than in a bigger place with a lot more employees. And I'm also introverted and autistic. So, you know, just not very good at in-person organizing in general. Doreen Ford is an anti-work activist. And in the time since our interview first aired, Doreen is no longer a moderator of the Reddit forum r slash anti-work. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. To learn more about Manifest House and to find recent coverage on the anti-work movement, you can visit our website at ctpublic.org slash disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.